What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You cover and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? You are a passionate person. There are things that you love and things that you hate. We live in a passionate culture with newspaper headlines in caps. And the Bible is a passionate book. And we see the various kind of forms of the Bible's passion in its various forms of, of literature. In the Bible, we see passion in law giving, passion in theology, passion in the writing of history. Uh, we, we see passion in prayer, passion in proverbs, passion in prophecy, passion in poetry. In, in the Psalms, we, we see passion in songwriting. In the Song of Songs, we, we see passion, at times, of a sexual nature between a husband and a wife. Even, even when the Bible lists names, it's passionate with roughly 25 genealogies in the Bible, with the writers being concerned that the actions of God through history really happened, really, really did happen. Verifiable, actual events, linking them to, to real people that really lived. And, and the, the, the Bible hinges ultimately on what theologians call the passion. That's the, the, the suffering of God himself on a cross, followed by his subsequent resurrection bodily. That is to say that uh, the Bible is far more passionate than any of the writings of, of J.K. Rowling, uh, Tolkien, uh, Sun Tzu, uh, uh, Shakespeare, and the Fifty Shades of E.L. James's work. Now, the Bible is a passionate book given to passionate people living in passionate cultures. But, but why all this passion? 
Well, the Bible wants to introduce us to a passionate God. A God who in Luke chapter 15 throws a party every time a person that doesn't believe in Jesus puts their faith in Jesus for the first time. A God that we read in Zephaniah chapter 3 uh, says this, he, 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 he rejoices over you with gladness and exalts over you with loud singing. Not just singing, but loud singing. A God who in John chapter 11 attends a funeral and weeps. The Bible wants to introduce you to a God with an emotional life. And the simple truth of it all is this, that God's made you like him. Uh, The Bible in Genesis chapter 1 puts it like this, that you have been made in the image of God. You you were created a, a passionate being, created to express yourself in passionate ways to live your life in the favor of a passionate father, which means far from being repulsed by human passion, far from being embarrassed by human passion, far from being surprised by human passion, the Bible would say that God is the one that supplies human passion, which means that if you are here for the first time, maybe for the longest time, you thought that basically before a person becomes a Christian, they have a bit of edge to them. Uh, you know, they, they were kind of mildly interesting and then they become a Christian and all of a sudden they become these dull, boring, stoic, stone-faced, plain digestive, please, type people. <laughs> well, well, the truth is, well, the opposite is true. Because the God of the Bible is a God that desires to give you a pulse. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Not too strong, but too weak. All this to say that God is pro-passion. God is pro-passion. Now, Hold on to that tightly because James is about to speak into passions and he, he speaks strongly. And in James chapter 4, the, the issue that James has is not so much that we are wrong to have passions. The issue he has is that the passions that we have are wrong, at least for the most part. I mean, come on. You and I both know that there exists in me and you at times passions that are toxic, sometimes even dangerous. And James, James goes after these passions. He, 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 he really pursues them in, in this passage. And he doesn't busy himself kind of downstream. No, James is more concerned with the, with the root rather than the fruit. He, he's more concerned with the, the reservoir rather than behavior. And, and, and it's this seed, this root, this reservoir uh, from which human behavior flows that the Bible refers to as the heart, the heart. Uh, James starts off by saying this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. Perhaps you've been in this situation before. Perhaps you have been speaking to a Christian and um, they're involved in some things that they perhaps shouldn't be involved in. They're in sin. And, and you are trying to help them, just trying to speak to them, chat to them about it. And perhaps you've heard this before. Um, yeah, but God sees my heart. Or I know God sees our hearts. James might say, yes, that's the problem. That's the problem. Because the Bible draws a direct line between our hearts and our behaviours. So much so that God, by viewing our hearts, can predict our behaviours. And to be sure, God can see both our heart and our behaviour. But the heart of the problem has always been the problem of the heart. Uh, the Bible will speak, speaks into the, the heart. And it doesn't have a lot of positive things to say about it, to be honest. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And it's important for us to know that our hearts are at their most bad when they're trying to convince us that we are good. Perhaps you've been in this situation. You've been caught out. Uh, someone's sort of pulled you up on something and it's something that you probably shouldn't have done. You've accepted kind of some responsibility, but then you followed up by saying something along these lines. Yeah, but it, it does make me a bad person. I mean, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. Don't say I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. This is, this is frightening. It's frightening because at the end of it all, what you get is bad hearts in, in bad people doing bad things convinced that they're good. James would use strong language here. He talks about murder and you might think well gosh whoa <laughs> it's ott isn't it murder well the truth is uh, it, it's it's these seeds that through history have caused genocides <laughs> genocides come from the seeds of i'm a good person uh, we don't even need to look as far back as history we only need to look at the news today and see See empires doing things that are inspired ultimately by a thinking that actually there's virtue, there's, there's a righteous cause here, there's, there's good, and I'm doing a good thing. We don't need to look in the news today. And I guess we could say, okay, well, I take the point. In history, those things have happened on, on a kind of international scale, those things happen. But for James to use such strong languages, for him to drop the M-bomb, I mean, I mean, we live in a fairly civilised society in the UK. Those things may happen overseas, but in the UK, again, we, we're fairly civilised. And in the grand scheme of things, kind of murder isn't something that happens kind of on a, a, on a regular basis. It's certainly not a, a kind of a huge issue, thankfully. The, the, the issue with that is that 
these, these things really are kind of, or at least they can be, uh, life and death issues. And while I know that every person in this situation takes, these, takes this really seriously, but in 2020, the Department of Health and Social Care reported 210,860 babies were aborted. 578 babies per day. The highest since records began. This is why James is so concerned about these desires, these passions, because he knows where they're able to lead to. And while our society does try to explain the kind of evils of our time, it, it tends to try and speak of the evils of our time in terms of, of systems and structures. Uh, it points to kind of contributory factors such as uh, parenting, such as environment, even such as a bad education to try and explain uh, human sinfulness. And, and while these things are <laughs> profoundly significant in the life of a person, truth is that the Bible doesn't let you and I off the hook that easily. No, the, the God of the Bible calls everybody everywhere to repent. He calls you and I to take responsibility for our sin. He calls us to, 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 to take responsibility for our sin and not blame anybody else. He calls us to ultimately take responsibility by understanding in truth that none of us are born blank canvases. But on the contrary, we all of us are born with a kind of stubborn, deep-rooted, resistant, aggressive tendency away from God and therefore away from good. And to really receive this teaching <laughs> is to do really the whole point of the passage we had read out for us. It is to humble yourselves before the Lord. Take the thief on the cross. Jesus was crucified uh, alongside uh, two thieves. Uh, one of them we call the thief on the cross. And the thief on the cross was a, was a wicked man by his own admission. Uh, but at the end of his life, he, he does what James says here. He, he humbled himself before the Lord, literally. And he says these words. He says to Jesus, We justly receive the due reward of our deeds. <laughs> the guy humbled himself by ultimately confessing his sin. And what's interesting is he doesn't uh, uh, justify his sin. He doesn't minimize his sin. He doesn't excuse his sin. He doesn't blame the, the problems of his life on, uh, on his father leaving home when he was a young boy. He doesn't blame the problems of his life on his mother who had a drinking problem. He doesn't blame the problems of his life on the gang that recruited him when he was 13 years old. He doesn't, he doesn't even rage against the machine and blame the system. Oh, it's the, it's the system. that The system's messed up. It's corrupt. A system that actually was getting him crucified. Uh, not, not kind of metaphorically, but literally crucified. 
No, no, this man humbled himself before the Lord. And do you know what happens next? Jesus exalts him. Jesus would turn to him and say, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? 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 Well, when you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. So let me say this. How are you doing with it? Are you a person that justifies, minimizes, or or excuses your sin? Or are you a person that is coming to Jesus and confessing it, saying, hey, Lord, this is me. Lord, forgive me. In my preparation, I really felt that there were people that um, are there today um, who are kind of running away from sin. And the sin is having an impact on your family or has had an impact on family. And I just feel God would call you to come forward and, and, and just give your sin to him, to own your sin. And when I talk about owning your sin, I'm not talking about uh, anything more than, as I say, repenting and confessing it. Because ultimately it was Jesus that took full responsibility on the cross, so much so that there is nothing more for you apart from love, mercy, and goodness. The punishment was taken by him. James moves on. He says, you covet, which means you have kind of these strong, wrong desires. You covet and cannot, cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. And then he goes on to give examples of how they're kind of doing, doing this. He says that they're speaking evil against one another and they're judging one another. And interestingly, uh, James links the kind of uh, infighting and quarreling in his culture uh, to a kind of lack of prayer. And it's interesting because... Here, the Bible, once again, uh, proves that it understands the human condition and human culture. Because where James talks about fighting and quarreling, uh, we as a culture really are uh, famed for fighting and quarreling. We, we tend to, in Brighton and in Hove, and people that live around uh, these areas, we, 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 we tend more to, to, to protest than to pray. We're more about indicting rather than interceding. We would, we would prefer to fight rather than fast. James says this, he says, you fight and quarrel because you do not ask. And let, let me say this, James isn't about saying, Uh, let's all pray and then kind of stick our fingers in our ears or let's all pray and sit on our hands. If you have been with us for any sort of period of time, you will know that through this series uh, that James is quite possibly the last person in the whole Bible to say something like that. The the whole point of his letter here is to, to get Christians doing something doing stuff, uh, to get Christians away from this kind of super spirituality, which is a false spirituality, to get Christians engaged in debate and discussion and discourse and, if appropriate, demonstration. No, no, James, James is all about these things. He's all about the practical. And yet with this heavy kind of practical emphasis, 
Uh, James isn't so um, kind of blinkered as to forget the vital importance of prayer. To begin with prayer. To fight, to argue, to protest, not in person, but in prayer. To, 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 to persevere, to wrestle with God and to see battles won. James says the issue is you do not ask. Meaning that if, if, until we are willing to make good issues, God issues, meaning that if, if we are willing to renounce fighting and quarreling and receive preaching and praying... Just like the community in Acts chapter 2 did. Just like the community of the black civil rights movement in the 1960s did. Two communities that bore significant fruit. Long-lasting, heart-changing, culture-shaping fruit. But two communities that ultimately obeyed James chapter 4 here by humbling themselves before the mighty hand of the Lord, as Peter puts it. And dear friends, we need to be... <laughs> We need to be the same. It's who we are. We, we, as a church, we have greater weapons than merely fighting and quarreling. And James, he then transitions. And he, he, moves, he moves to, well, he moves away from talking about our human passions. And he starts to talk about what God's passions are. And, and here, uh, we, we, we hear more about the emotional life of God. James puts it like this. He says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He yearns jealously. God, in his passion, gets jealous. And while in our culture we, we might think of je jealousy as a kind of a negative trait, I mean, understandably so, right? I mean, people all over the world do awful things out of jealousy. I mean, the Bible displays jealousy as well. We see jealousy at key moments in the Bible. One that comes to mind immediately is David and Saul, if you know that story. But the Bible doesn't just display jealousy. It speaks directly into jealousy, and it doesn't have a lot of good things to say. Uh, we see in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34, it says this, For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. What? God gets jealous. Is God really like that? That's an important question for us to consider. Uh, let me try and help us. Let me, let me read that, that scripture from Proverbs again to help us. It says this, Jealousy makes a man furious. Jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. The first thing you need to know about God's jealousy is that God's jealousy isn't like the jealousy of man. God's love, God's love is not reckless, as some songs might suggest. No, no, God's, God's love is intense. God's love is passionate. But in, in all of God's emotional life, he is controlled, he is proportionate, he is appropriate. He, he, he doesn't fly off the handle, and, and, and that is just as true of his jealousy as anything else. But with that said, it would be wrong for me to, to stand here and say that God, God's jealousy isn't a fearful thing. 
Now, I'd be lying to you if I were to say that. No, it's to, to provoke God's jealousy is a, is, a, is a frightening thing. It really is. But with that said, there are really... I guess the first question we should ask about it is what makes God jealous? I mean, what does the Bible say? What's the number one thing that makes God jealous then? And there is certainly an answer for that that the Bible would give. There is an answer that is really pretty clear through the whole scripture. Uh, The number one thing, the thing that sticks out like a sore thumb that makes God the most jealous, idolatry. Idolatry. And I, I, I try, I almost don't want to say that word because when we think of idol worshipping, which is what idolatry is, we, we so often think of people bowing down before kind of wooden uh, kind of creatures and statues or whatever and think, oh, well, that's not us. We're off the hook. Eh-eh, not true. The reality is that we are born worshippers, all of us. And we worship different things. And God's issue with kind of idolatry, God's issue... Uh, <laughs> In all of this, ultimately, is when we really go after creation rather than the creator. Uh, when we are all about the gifts of God rather than the, the son of God. When we, pursue, when we pursue good things, good things like food, like alcohol, like the body, like relationships, like sex, like the environment. When we pursue good things and ultimately turn them into God things the things that are the most important beyond anything else. That, 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 that provokes God to jealousy. Um, and if we are Christians, we may say, okay, well, you know, I'm, ultimately I'm, I don't do this. You know, I, I know other people might do, but I'm a Christian. I don't do this. Uh, we do do it. Um, we just do it in a more kind of religious and more pious way. Uh, for example, perhaps you've prayed like this. Dear God, Please give me my real God. Amen. I know I've prayed like that. No, God, God in his kindness, he, 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 won't, <laughs> he won't give you those things out of kindness because that would ultimately provoke him to jealousy. And this is what James, James is getting at here. He, he, he says in our passage, he says that, guys, first of all, uh, you have lots of passions, lots of desire. You want to see change. You want to see things done but you're not praying. And then he says, and those of you that are praying, you're praying, but you're asking with the wrong motives. James puts it like this specifically. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And James uses a a, a, um, a kind of a a strong word for this. Here in this church, we... (laughs) We, we, we go through the whole Bible. We, we, we don't skip the bits that are kind of strongly worded. Uh, James uses the word adultery. Rather than leaning on your lover, cheating on your lover. Uh, God sees this behavior as marital unfaithfulness. But let me say this. God's jealousy points to something very positive for us very positive because it points really to just how committed God is to you. It, it points to just how seriously God takes his, his relationship with you, how seriously he takes his, his love for you. It's, it's more than commitment, actually. It's, it's, it's holy matrimony. 
That, that's how God sees you. He sees you. He sees you as the apple of his eye, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He, 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 if you're a Christian, you take his name. You bear his name. That's what Jesus' relationship to the church is. It's, it's a marriage. It's a marriage. Which is why uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, the Bible helps us to understand that it says why God even created this weird thing called marriage. And it says that God created marriage to be something of a miniature dramatization of the great marriage, the, the, the heavenly marriage between Christ and his imperfect bride, the church. I tell you this, this is the passion of God. James talks about human passions and he transitions to God's passions. And Jesus' passion today is his church. Jesus' passion is you. And there are times in the Bible where we see this kind of exude. <laughs> just, just, Jesus just kind of bubbles up in this kind of passion. It just flows off the page in this kind of poetic language. Uh, this, is, this is what it says. This is, this is how... God receives your kind of weak, pale, lackluster devotion to him. This is how he receives it. He says this, You have captivated my heart. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart. With one glance of your eyes, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine? When you start to pray, but quickly get distracted, but decide to press in. When you, when you begin to read this book, and within five seconds, don't have a clue what's going on, but you decide to pick up a commentary. And when you decide to sing to him in the time of worship, but you're just not feeling it, but you decide to sing every word to the end of the song. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And Jesus Jesus' passion, it doesn't just, it's not just for a night. He's not, all, he's not about holiday romances, no. Jesus, Jesus really is about commitment. He's about the long term. So much so that Jesus in his passion would make you vows. Promising to have and to hold you from this day forward. For better, for worse for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Where did, when did God make me those vows? I'll tell you this. God made you those vows at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God demonstrated in the presence of many witnesses his love for you. But there are some vows that God will that Jesus will, will never make to you. There is one vow that Jesus just cannot make to you. 
and that is, till death do us part. Because I tell you this, not even death will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it gets better because James ends on the passion of God's grace. The passion of God's love always leads to the passion of God's grace. And it says that he gives grace to the humble. And, and James lists um, some key characteristics of what it looks like to be humble. Submitting yourselves to God, resisting the devil, drawing near to God, cleansing your hands spiritually and mourning your sin. But, but is this all that Christianity is? Kind of this humility, <laughs> a, a, a life, an eternity of eating humble pie married to Jesus. Is there more? Well, there is. Aside from what we've just discussed, his love. I'll tell you this. The Bible says this. James says this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will exalt you. We don't have to get nervous around that sort of language. It's in the Bible. If you're a Christian, God will exalt you at the proper time. He will lift you up. He will lift you up higher than you could ever dream of being lifted up. He will lift you up so high it will knock your socks off. <laughs> That's why it's so inappropriate when we lift ourselves up and are about our own glory, our own honor, our own fame. Because even if we pursued that wholeheartedly for all the days of our life, it will never be as high as God is willing to lift us up. He, he lifts you up through, he lifts you up from the dark place. He lifts you up from the dominion of darkness. He lifts you up from the grave. He lifts you up to sit in heavenly places. He lifts you up to live forever. He lifts you up to, to, to rule with him. He lifts you up to judge the angels. He lifts you up so that you can see him face to face. How? What? How? What? This is what Jesus has done through his suffering on the cross. Jesus, the, the truly glorious one, calls his wife up with him to share in his glory. So dear friend, let's humble ourselves under his hand by coming to him in humility and confessing our sin and trust, as Peter says later on in the Bible, at the proper time, he will lift us up. He will exalt us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for uh, your economy. It doesn't make sense to us in so many ways to, to, to humble ourselves is ultimately to, to, to be lifted up and uh, Lord we, we think it's the other way we think to lift, be lifted up is to be lifted up but Father we, we do ask Lord that you would just help us now to be humble it's not something we can do by ourselves we need the Holy Spirit to help us I just pray Lord we would Lord come to you now owning our sin trusting that actually Jesus was the one that took it for us and receive from you this wonderful, passionate love and grace in its place. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.